everybody. Welcome to a, another episode of Friday Happy Hour, the show on the American Shoreline Podcast Network, where we have a few drinks and talk about all things coastal. Really a free-ranging, wide-ranging uh, show that we have. But today, uh, we're, we're getting drinks with some attorneys, some high-caliber folks, uh, and let me introduce them to you. Of course, we have Peter Ravella, uh, right here uh, in person in Austin, Texas. We also have the co-host of the Changing Waters podcast, Thane Tinson, who is also at the moment the co-counsel for the uh, Coalition to Protect the Puget Sound Habitat, which is convenient because our show today is all about aquaculture. So Thane, uh, we were emailing earlier this week uh, setting up this little happy hour that we're having now and Thane was like hey let me invite some buds let's invite some friends to uh, have some drinks and talk about aquaculture a subject ladies and gentlemen that uh, as you know we think is very important it's going to be a, an increasingly important feature on the American shoreline uh, in the future so we are joined today by uh, Holly Templeton uh, the senior ocean campaigner for Friends of the Earth and Amy Van Son, the senior attorney for the Center for Food Safety. And I'm gonna kick this thing off with Haley. Hallie, excuse me. Hallie, can you just start us off with an overview of what aquaculture is? It's massively complicated. There's all sorts of different types. Uh, help help our, us and our audience, our, our drinking friends out there, understand what aquaculture is. I can tell you in a sentence. Um, which I also didn't know what it was before I started this work. I had to Google it. Um, so that was its own endeavor. But aquaculture is basically the farming of food and water. You can do it in the marine space of the ocean. You can also do it in buildings filled with water, like aquaponics um, and aquaculture on land. Uh, but yeah, you can farm uh, fish, shellfish, sea kelp, and other types of vegetables even if you have an on-land system. Um, so that's in a nutshell what aquaculture is. And in the United States, what what kind of uh, t can you give me a little uh, a little tour, for example, of what t what types of products, you know, our audience might have encountered that are, are likely to come from aquaculture? What, what's the market like? So there's one massively farmed item in the U.S. that you probably get often on your dinner plate if you're not aware um, of, of bad forms of aquaculture. But Atlantic salmon is heavily farmed in the U.S. and in other countries. Um, and it has a pretty devastating uh, environmental and economic impact. Um, but Atlantic salmon is a major aquaculture uh, product. And oysters and shellfish are also farmed in coastal waters and states uh, using aquaculture in marine spatial areas. Well, and I think we can elaborate on this thing talking, too, because in recent years, uh, we've seen advances in aquaculture technology that have extended largely into the more expensive luxury seafood range. I'm thinking halibut, king salmon, sturgeon, black cod are all uh, farmed to some extent, and uh, king salmon increasingly so and, and globally. Um, but also at the lower end, uh, foods that are used a lot in fish tacos and fish sandwiches are like tilapia, catfish, um, come to mind, and those have been largely farmed outside the U.S., but are now being farmed in the U.S. Hmm. Um, Amy uh, Van Tom from the Center for Food Safety, uh, what brought you and Thane and Hallie together on this topic? 
Well, um, we, Center for Food Safety, generally our mission is related to all industrial agriculture, including uh, the factory farming of, of aquatic organisms, in addition to like regular factory farming of say pigs and cows and chickens. So I think we first um, plugged in really heavily our litigation team, of which I'm a part, in opposing uh, the offshore aquaculture, the use of our opening of our federal waters in the Gulf of Mexico to, uh, to fin fish aquaculture. And so that was, that was one area um, that we started working, uh, had been working with Friends of the Earth in, in that capacity, as well as, and this is I, a whole other kind of left field thing, but the genetically engineered salmon, that is um, a whole other litigation I'm happy to discuss, uh, that would be in that uh, that Atlantic salmon farming space. Um, also work we've been doing with Friends of the Earth. And then as to the shellfish aquaculture in Washington, we have a lot of members uh, throughout the state uh, who were coming to us with their concerns about this increasingly industrialized and expanding industry. And so that's where we we plugged in and then um, had the, have had the pleasure of the last couple of years now of working with Thane and um, and the other attorneys representing the coalition to protect Puget Sound in that case. So it sounds to me like this aquaculture business is not uh, in. It sounds like there are some concerns, which is interesting because I think that uh, for a lot of uh, people, aquaculture kind of has a green uh, element. It's part of like sustainable food. Maybe a lot of people would think Thane. Can you talk to us a little bit about uh, the the complexity? Maybe we just should start with offshore aquaculture as a as a as just an example. But uh, what's going on here? Why is this problematic? Well, there are a number of problems with it, and I think focusing as Amy and I have in the last uh, several years on shellfish, it has just been a massively underregulated industry. In no small part, I think there's some very successful lobbying uh, on the part of the industry itself. And then I think it's because of the rapid expansion of it and the science that has uh, normally accompanies that kind of rapid expansion just hasn't been able to keep up with uh, the expansion of the industry. So there's not much in the way, relatively speaking, of peer-reviewed research to look at um, any potential adverse environmental impacts. And there are many that can accompany an industry and do, in fact, accompany um, the shellfish industry. And in Washington State, where we've focused our uh, shellfish challenge against the Corps of Engineers, um, this is a, an industry that was successful in 2007 for the first time in securing what is known um, as a nationwide permit, essentially a fast track to uh, ha having um, shellfish farms permitted um, for regulatory purposes. And uh, the most recent iteration of that, the 2017 a permit is one that had what we refer to as a 100-year look back, essentially allowing any swath of shoreline that had been ever used for even gathering wild oysters, for example, and then remained a towel for, in theory, 99 years to suddenly get a fast track to being permitted. Um, and in no small part here in Washington State, where 92% of the nationwide permits have been issued, um, 
to uh, to fuel the Chinese demand for gooey ducks, and we can talk a lot about that. But that's certainly been a big deal. And then salmon, of course, uh, on the fin fish side. I'll let Hallie talk more about the fin fish side since she's the authority on that. But that goes back 20 years, and then it's just increased. Probably 90 percent of the salmon sold here in the United States, frankly, is farmed salmon. So. Um, Thane, for the benefit of our listeners out there, and we have a lot of folks who are, you know, are not from the legal profession, but let's, let's explain a little bit about what a nationwide permit is. And uh, we're talking about the jurisdiction of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers under the Clean Water Act, Section 404 permits, which are dredging and filling uh, water, uh, de- uh, the, the, the construction of, of uh, facilities in the water, and a nationwide permit is a streamlining method of approving projects. Can you expound a little bit on the nationwide permit that was created? What does it cover? And what kind of conditions are imposed in this nationwide permit, which is, a, as well, I say, I'm a really fast track? I rely on Amy to, to, to jump in here as well, because nationwide permit for the shellfish industry is uh, 48, which suggests that there's 47 others, and uh, there's, there are approximately 50 of them, and Amy, you may know more, but they cover a wide variety of industries, including oil and gas industry and mining industries and the like, but they're essentially a governmental recognition of a, a need for some sort of a, a national permitting system that recognizes that there are common um, features about an industry that lend itself to nationwide permitting, but it's also supposed to be accompanied by a recognition that the environmental impacts associated with that industry are regular enough, common enough, um, that they too can be treated on a national basis. And that's where I think Amy and I would say that has definitely not proven to be the case for the shellfish industry. We just simply don't believe it lends itself to that kind of nationwide streamlined permitting because there's such a wide variety of uh, shoreline habitats all over the country that are used for shellfish farming that have a wide variety of differences environmentally, ecologically, uh, geographically, geologically, that just simply don't lend themselves to this. And yet they've been shoehorned into this nationwide permitting process. Um, But let let Amy take it from here, because I I think uh, I don't want to go any further with that. Go ahead, Amy. Sure. The nationwide permit, uh, this is a this is a permit under the Clean Water Act. And I, and I think the purpose of them, like Thane said, is to recognize that certain things are similar enough, activities are similar enough, uh, but also that their environmental impacts altogether will be minimal, uh, minimally adverse, that is. So they're not going to be harming the environment. And I will say that it's this nationwide permit for the shellfish aquaculture is not the first nationwide permit to be challenged where the Army Corps has relied on this uh, fast track. In fact, there was just a recent case about oil and gas pipelines, as as Thane mentioned, uh, where uh, specifically as to the Keystone XL pipeline, where those impacts are really not, when you put them all together, minimal. Um, So there is, it's a problem (laughs) beyond just the aquaculture, but especially with with regard to what's being grown uh, nationwide in the shellfish arena, most of the use of that nationwide permit is in Washington state. 
um, 90 something percent of it. So calling it nationwide is almost really a misnomer. It's, it's really a Washington state permit. And then within Washington, there's a pretty big difference between say um, growing oysters uh, on the, on the you know, uh, substrate versus gooey duck, uh, growing gooey duck clams where there's uh, a massive amount of plastic use and, and just differences even within the state of Washington as to the habitats that are impacted um, you know, Willapa Bay is different than Puget Sound, which is not the same throughout the entire water body. So uh, part of it is the, the lack of similarity of activities, but this permit covered, you know, placing any kind of in-water structures for shellfish. Um, so that includes things like racks or bags that oysters might be grown in, uh, the PVC tubes and plastic nets that go on top of that, that, that gooey ducks are grown in. Um, as well as the harvesting activities, which, which are also a variety of things. Um, and all of that was subsumed under this nationwide permit. So it's quite, it's, it seems to be quite broad, but, uh, and, and Hallie, I've, I haven't forgot, I want to talk about fin fish aquaculture particularly. And, but um, Amy, I, I want to just follow up and just kind of ask you, you know, here, this is a happy hour session, so we're, we're allowed to just kind of shoot the breeze here. Uh, I want to ask you, what are there examples of, of good aquaculture? Like, is, is aquaculture something that we should be doing at all? Um, you know, it, c can you point me to like a responsible operation? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a there is a yes to that, uh, but it depends. <laughs> like every lawyer will say, anytime you ask us a question, is that it, it depends. Uh, when we're talking about fin fish, uh, and I'll let Hallie speak more to that. I mean, again, it's like this wide variety of where are you doing it? What are the native species, the wildlife that are being impacted by it? Um, how is it affecting the environment? So, like. Like Hallie said, you know, there's like on land facilities, which may be very, very different than open ocean type facilities. Um, in terms of just shellfish, there are there are good oyster growers out there. And I mean, if we were in person at a happy hour right now, I would probably be ordering us like a dozen oysters because I do personally. Enjoy that sounds like a great that. idea. Right. Uh, I'm into it. But um, so like one of the growers that I, I know and. Um, in Grace Harbor, uh, she uses, uh, she grows oysters and clams. Uh, she grows them on the bottom of the, of the beach there without any plastics or structures. Um, she doesn't clear the beach of native species beforehand. And so she, there's a biodiversity that happens that is retained with, um, you know, other, all the other sorts of wildlife that exists from very, very small microorganisms, you know, to fish and to birds and, and eelgrass and other, other sea grasses. And so all that can coexist together. And then say, for instance, when you're going to harvest those oysters, you would do it by hand or, or something, or, you know, instead of like a big mechanical kind of dredge and just clear off the beach. So there right. are ways, there are, there are good oyster uh, operations in, in Washington and, and I'm sure elsewhere. Um, and I mean, I think the same could potentially be true for fin fish, but it really depends on the species and where it's done and how it's done. Uh, yes. Perfectly set up. Uh, I, I want, you know, I can understand just intuitively how like, you know, kelp, for example, might make sense, uh, or shellfish. Um, uh, but fin fish, I can see being quite problematic. 
Hallie, I would would you uh, do us the honor and just kind of give an overview of what finfish aquaculture looks like, what the operation consists of of raising these fish, and uh, just the you know a, a, a bit about the the impacts and and how it all works. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, so I'm going to focus on marine aquaculture. Um, there's lots of different ways, like we went over, but I think that you know the biggest concerns um, to focus on today is is the ocean is with the ocean. And so when you start farming fish in open water, a lot of the concerns, kind of that Amy touched on with factory farming on land, are translated into the water, and in some cases can be even worse. So if you think about um, fish feed and antibiotics and pharmaceuticals that are put into the feed to feed the farmed fish, those leach into the open waterway. And it's different than just having emissions into the air. It's discharged into the, directly into the water where wildlife is residing and it's carried in the water and absorbed in by marine life. Um, and so that, that's very concerning. And that's one input that, um, you know, that fin fish require that, that kelp and mussels and oysters don't require. You don't have to feed those things. Um, there's also the risk of fish escapes. Uh, when there's a hurricane in the Gulf of Mexico, imagine a, you know, a massive fish farm moored to the seabed and a hurricane coming through and ripping it up. Um, or if it's even just not cleaned well, we saw a massive fish escape scenario in Washington state, more than 260,000 Atlantic salmon, which are non-native, escaped into Puget Sound in August 2017. And thankfully, the state got its act together and passed a law to phase out the industry after that. So they learned its lesson. Um, but fish escapes are real and they happen and they're commonplace. And when fish escape, they can carry with them disease and parasites that were in the net pen and spread that to wildlife and increase competition for wild stocks. Um, marine mammal attraction and entanglement are real. That happens. A very um, endangered monk seal in Hawaii was entangled and died in a net pen um, in state waters down there a couple of years ago. Um, and I mean, <laughs> the list goes on. There's There's so much wrong with it. I think uh, something else, just put simply, that fish poop. They do. They There's fish waste there, and that also goes into the waterway. Um, it's not like oysters and kelp where there's no outputs. Um, they're not filter feeders. Fish are not. They, they increase the inputs into the water. Um, and for areas like the Gulf of Mexico, again, there's already a red tide. There's a concern there with the amount of pollutants in the water, and there's no reason to add more pollutant to the water. Um, so, yeah, I'm happy to elaborate on any of that but the list goes on and, and the concerns are real environmentally sounds like, sounds like we're pretty down on the fin fish agriculture i gotta say well I, amy you brought up and i think this is an important point of departure i think i've heard two things from you guys so far that that sort of set the stage for the work that you're trying to do number one we're talking about the emergence of industrial scale aquaculture operations of a variety of types, and there's a tremendous range of practices, there's a tremendous range of species and habitats in which they're executed. But we're, as, as people, you know, we all talk about wanting to have different diets and less red meat and more fish and how protein from the sea is, is a bridge and important food source. But, but we're talking here about something that is emerging as a major industrial practice on the American shoreline. So it's the scale that's important. And Thane, the thing that you brought up, which I think is interesting, is the state of understanding in the science. Um, to what extent do we understand the interactions of these uh, industrial practices with native 
uh, species and the impact on the on the environment um, that y'all have laid out. So the, here's the, what I'd like to ask each of you to take take a moment and comment on if you were looking at this sort of in a scale of one to ten and how prepared we are for the emergence of this industry and it is just starting to become more and more important. Um, how prepared are we on a, a 10 being we're perfectly ready, we understand it, our regulatory system is, is, is well thought through and in place. You know, Amy, let me start with you. How prepared are we for the emergence of a major aquaculture industry on the American shoreline? You know, I'm gonna say like a one or two. Wow. <laughs> uh, I don't think we have enough um, comprehensive laws that have the precautionary principle built in. Uh, not that some of our existing laws don't cover these operations, but you know, for instance, uh, especially with the offshore aquaculture, there is no, there's no legislation. There's no nothing from Congress saying, yeah, you should go do this in our federal waters. And we know that because uh, NOAA fisheries tried in the Gulf and uh, they tried to use a different authority to regulate wild fisheries and uh, we beat them in court. Um, and they've gone to Congress multiple times and tried to ask for legislation to be able to do this. So there's that piece. Um, there's also, as Thane said, the lack of the scientific understanding uh, of the impacts. And, you know, I mean, it, it actually just made me think of like vaping versus smoking cigarettes. Like just because we know overfishing is like tobacco, it's very bad, <laughs> uh, doesn't mean that the new kid on the block is necessarily any better. And once we look more closely at those impacts uh, to, you know, the economic impacts as well to, to, to wild fisheries and the people that depend on clean and healthy oceans, uh, you know, once we look at all that, I think we're going to see we really are pretty unprepared. Hey, uh, I know Peter directed that question uh, to all of you. So I'm going to we I want everyone's <laughs> grades, but a quick follow up, Amy, um, a one or a two. Do you see room for improvement? I mean, can you, you think <laughs> Nothing we're going to up? You, yeah. I mean, are we going to are we going to bring that bad boy up to a five or a six? Uh, and, you know, are you optimistic? I mean, you know, I, I'm more optimistic about state actions generally in this time and uh, age that we're in. Uh, and so we have seen some states. I should say that that's like my knee-jerk reaction to like our overall as a United States. But that doesn't mean that individual states don't have maybe more like Hallie said, you know, Washington finally said, oh, we probably shouldn't do uh, Atlantic salmon in our state waters. So, yeah, yeah I mean, it, it, there's and, and of course, more study could happen. I, I, I hope that with the work that we're doing as we raise the awareness in the general public, and, and as we push our policymakers to, to pay attention to this issue, that we can uh, increase that grade. So Hallie, what's your grade? I'm gonna be with Amy and say we've got a one or a two. Um, you know, I, the one thing I'll point to is that we don't have to look too, too far to see other countries that have devastated their coastlines with finfish aquaculture. Denmark and Canada are both moving away from this industry and they've been seen as leaders in aquaculture in the, in the world. Um, and if we, if there's other countries who have said, you know what, this, we've had enough, this is not good for our country, we're going to stop farming finfish in open water, we should listen to that and just take that as being a leader in ocean management because we don't have this stuff offshore yet. Um, but I do think it, there's room to improve our seafood production here at home 
Um, there are ways to farm finfish that are, can be positive um, and, and don't harm the environment. You can take it on land and if it's done at an appropriate scale, they can use regenerative energy and they can totally recycle all of their water and farm finfish and kelp and other vegetables and shellfish and have a little ecosystem and feed the community that way. And so I think that, you know, changing the conversation about food production here at home um, can take us quite far in improvement. Yeah, you know, and I can give my two cents worth, too. I think there's some distinction between uh, the shellfish industry and the thinfish industry, and it depends on the species, but there's also differences in, in the state. For example, in Washington state, the shorelines are largely privately owned, and that is the reason why, in no small part, that we have a pretty well-developed shellfish industry. That is not true in the state where we live in Oregon, where the shorelines are publicly owned. You don't have that, where the only oysters, for example, or clams that are grown are grown on leased lands, and there are very few of them. California, again, privately owned shorelines, so you have a little bit more, but a much more highly developed state. And then you got to look at each water body. For example, in Washington State, Willapa Bay was the center of oyster production for the San Francisco Gold Rush. And the industry, which largely uh, then just gathered the wild Olympia oysters in 1849 and the years thereafter, became a real hotbed of oyster production. When it was found that the oysters that were so popular among San Franciscans couldn't be grown in California. They couldn't figure out how to do it. And so Willapa Bay became a real center. Today, it's considered a production shoreline. It's where the vast majority of that shoreline is dedicated to industrial shellfish production. Now, Puget Sound, much bigger body of water that encompasses all the way from, well, this now called the Salish Sea, really, from north of Vancouver, B.C., down through to the capital of Washington, Olympia, hundreds of miles, uh, has not seen that kind of extensive development, but is beginning to, particularly in the southern part of it. And again, largely as a consequence of increased international demand, particularly from China for gooey duck, but uh, also for oysters um, and clams. These are luxury seafoods, too. Um, and you get the phenomenon, as we all know, and as lawyers of a captured agency. That is to say that the regulatory agency becomes, over time, um, overly familiar with and overly biased, from our perspective, certainly, uh, in favoring the industry and, and having a light regulatory touch, which is not appropriate, particularly when there really isn't any regulatory agency that looks intensively at these industries and um, the kinds of environmental, adverse environmental impacts that, that we're concerned about. But like, it's the same thing for land-based, you know, whether you're looking at hogs, chickens, beef, it's about scale, it's about density, it's about locations, it's about their maintenance of the facilities, it's about uh, the how much you damage the natural habitat, uh, the use of chemicals as a favorite type, get Amy to talk about that, and, and plastics, as she mentioned as well, which is a huge problem in the industry. And so, I mean, all the things that, that I think are, we're concerned about in the way we breed, where we grow any kind of food industrially are now applicable to the shellfish and finfish industries as well, and increasingly so. 
Well, you know, I'm, I'm pleased to see that there are dedicated organizations and people who are uh, taking the role as uh, as as watchdogs of this emerging industry. And I'm not saying that it hasn't been going on for a long time. It has in certain ways, but uh, because it, it's complicated and it's a dedicated uh, dedication of ocean resources. If we look at what happens on on land uh, uh, land based food industrial food production, I mean we've all seen the horror stories about uh, conf- combined uh, confined animal feeding operations, CAFOs, particularly in North Carolina where you've got massive pig farms or chicken or other other. Uh, products that are being produced the waste streams are huge the the waste pits are very large hurricane florence flooded and released millions and millions of gallons and tons of pig waste into the waterway system and into nearshore waters when we start looking at the scale of trying to to meet market demand in china in aquaculture it is a little frightening to think about how much impact that can potentially have. And here's the question I wanted to, to ask you guys is we, we, we had the benefit of speaking with the Pacific Coast Shellfish Growers Association's Executive Director, Margaret Pilaro. Uh, we were joined on that show by Bob, and I'm going to mispronounce his last name, uh, Roald, I think, from the East Coast Shellfish Growers Association. And look, it was an important conversation for us because they were introducing us to small-scale growers and farmers who were uh, who were part of the economy of coastal America, who were doing some good work. Uh, the impression that I got from them was that the impacts issues were fairly minor. Um, so I want to talk about shellfish growing and and about the concerns uh, with nearshore shellfish growing and and i really want to ask you guys and uh, and i'm just going to throw it out whoever is the right person to answer it about the history of willoughby bay in washington state where as you said they there has been aquaculture going on there for a hundred years now what do you see in the bay what's the health of that system has it tolerated it well i mean what's the what what have you learned from looking at that particular bay system and its relationship to aquaculture. Um, anybody want to jump on that? You want to jump in? I mean, I can certainly can start up, but I, I don't want to monopolize the conversation either. I mean, it's a, it is a, it was once pristine, uh, allegedly, relative to other estuaries in the lower 48. Uh, I think the Attorney General labeled it in, in 2007 as a chemical stew or a chemical soup. It's a, a transformed environment. Uh, it's a production shoreline. Amy, you want to weigh in on that? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I think you you nailed some of that history down, Spain, when you mentioned the, you know, that there used to be these wild uh, Olympia oysters, and there used to be a lot of them, and I think that they were a really important part of the ecosystem. They also exist in Oregon, um, and although not not at high populations, but there are efforts to restore them, uh, and they they did filter the water, and I think uh, that it was that gold rush that, you know, like like we humans do sometimes decimate the population of something and then uh, and start importing um, importing oysters from from Japan in the case of the Pacific oyster as the kind of the biggest variety grown uh, and you know it's a, a, a kind of 
fun fact here is that with that import of bringing, of bringing Pacific oysters over, we also brought over an uh, supposedly invasive species, like the way that we move around invasive species around the world. Uh, in this case, um, uh, Japanese eelgrass, which is a different variety of the eelgrass that we have in the Salish Sea. That's a very important habitat uh, and food source for, for a lot of wildlife. And, uh, but so there's this, this uh, other variety of it and it's been growing and this is, you know, this happened, you know, decades and decades ago and it's now spread, um, you know, from Northern California up into BC. It grows at a slightly higher tidal elevation than, than the native yield grass, but in a place like Willapa Bay, which is a pretty flat bay, shallow bay, that is, um, it, there's a lot of mixed beds of this. And um, that kind of brings me to the, some of the pesticide use issues that I, would, I really want to highlight. Um, for, for decades, these same oyster growers have been using this industrial method of using pesticides to kill species that they don't, that interfere uh, with, their, with their operations. Uh, and just like we do with row crops on land, um, you know, to get into this pesticide treadmill where you're spraying one, it kills off some of it, but then maybe there's some resistance that develops or there's a real, you know, well, it's, it doesn't actually kill the species entirely. It keeps coming back. Um, the company, you know, maybe they uh, realize that it's pretty toxic and we want to switch to a different one. But, you know, we've been using pesticides for decades in this country and we and still apparently need to, which makes me think they don't work very well. But for 50 years, uh, the industry used carbaryl, which is an insecticide, to kill off burrowing shrimp, uh, which are a native species in Willapa Bay, because um, they're um, supposedly, you know, churning up the, the, the substrate and making oysters uh, sink and clams sink uh, if they're grown on the surface. Uh, now, that is the natural action of those burrowing shrimp, and it's an actually a very important one as right. part of the ecosystem. Um, so then finally, some of the folks that live in the Bay got, got them to stop, basically, um, you know, legal action being helpful there. And uh, because it's carbaryl's carcinogenic, and uh, it also harms endangered species. So the industry tried to switch over to a newer pesticide, but a neonicotinoid, uh, which, as I'm sure people are real, you know, recognize the name, uh, neonics, they kill bees, they're really bad for pollinators. Uh, they also kill uh, aquatic invertebrates quite well. And so the industry tried to use those. A lot of the same growers that are in the Pacific Coast Shellfish Growers Association uh, championed that, um, that use of that pesticide, despite all of the impacts that it would have on the wildlife in the Bay. Uh, luckily, the state, although it initially said yes, eventually said no, and we were part of that effort. And, uh, but they are still spraying herbicide to kill off that Japanese eelgrass that came over with oysters from Japan many, many decades ago. Wow. Okay. I need to, I need, you need to teach me some things here, Amy, because the whole idea of spraying and applying pesticides in a water column, I'm, I'm just like, man, I've, I've heard about this. So there's two pests from the standpoint of a shellfish grower in Willapy Bay. One is the burrowing shrimp as you said, which destabilizes the substrate in a way that the oysters are not on the surface and maybe don't work as well, but you got Presumably by burrowing. By burrowing because they're burrowing tramps. So we're gonna get rid of those. 
gee, can you put these damn oysters on a rack above the bottom? I don't know, but you can, if, in fact. But <laughs> um, and and then you have this eelgrass, which you and why is that a problem? They need to clear the 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 bay bottom of this eelgrass, and why? What does that do if you're trying to produce oysters? Uh, they say that it interferes with clam production because wow. of the roots of the uh, of the of the grass getting in the way of the clams that are growing under under you know in in the sand, so that uh, they get less you know less clams per per acre, basically. Space uh, issue. Uh, it's a space competition. Yeah, I think yes. you're right. And I mean, it's also because they use mechanized means of harvesting the. The clams, they, they, when they mow the grass, if you will, they, the grass will clog it. And then it also takes away space. Uh, if you get rid of all the eelgrass, there's more space to grow more shellfish. So that's a twofold issue for them. But it's basically about uh, increasing the density with which they can grow oysters. They, in fact, I'm looking at, as we speak, I'm looking at a 2010 document where the industry, the same PSGA that you interviewed just a few weeks ago, said and characterized native eelgrass as well as uh, other uh, seagrasses as pests, nuisances. Um, and that's the way they're regarded as. And unfortunately, they have for them, but fortunately for the uh, for the ecology, I mean, this is a critical keystone component of the shoreline habitat. I mean, it provides refuge and food yeah. uh, for and stabilization of the shoreline, which could impact and probably does the presence of burrowing shrimp. Um, it just has so many benefits. There's a, a laundry list of problems that the industry um, has produced by going to an industrial production model on these shorelines and Willapai is probably exhibit a in our neck of the woods well i mean down here in texas on the on the gulf coast and all along the gulf of mexico uh, uh seagrasses are highly prized and highly protected environments and i'll tell you the corps of engineers is pretty aggressive about uh ensuring projects account for the presence of seagrass they will deny permits if it is uh seagrass particularly in the laguna madre so it it does it it is a very important habitat uh, type for all of the reasons that you said, Thane. But so I I'm just can somebody tell me what do you do? You take what you got a liquid? You go out on the boat? You sprinkle it in the water? Do you spray it? I mean, how do you how do you dispense it? Yeah, how do you do it? How do you kill burrowing shrimp with a pesticide in the water? Well, they used to use helicopters, if oh. you can believe that. Oh, like that. a crop Aerial dusting spraying like crop dusting. Uh, and, and we've heard uh, all sorts of stories of people that were actually sprayed by that and the health impacts they, that then, they then had to deal with. But mm. now, uh, so not allowed to use a, mat or a mitocloprid anymore in the neonic, but they are allowed to spray a herbicide. And they do that by like broadcast spraying. So I think backpack um, or- Yeah, I'm not like it. I'm tank. not, I'm not um, digging it. I'm, I'm really not. I'm, I'm just not comfortable with that. The idea of the broadcast application of herbicides or pesticides into the water column. I mean, it's bad enough to do that in a cornfield, but at least there's not really anything else there. You know, it's, no, it's I, I mean, mean it's minimal. I, but in this case, which, well, it's I mean, it clearly, seems... clearly there's just externalities to, to that kind of activity that are not being are not well 
a it's hard to you know what what one of the things i've learned uh from this conversation is just how complex this world is there's a lot going on so to under to to even begin to understand uh the impacts and the thing is you're doing this in a wild space which yeah. which is different i would say than you know your average cornfield although i'm sure we can you know talk about how it's all you know part of the planet um but let's let's stay focused let's stay focused on this happy hour uh i understand that in this covid era uh there has been a concerted effort to uh kind of push through some some uh industry favored uh I don't know, anti-regulations or just kind of speed things along. Uh, Amy, would you start? And I, I want to get Thane on this as well. But what's going on there with uh, industry pushing uh, pushing the regulatory process right now in the COVID period? I'd actually love if Hallie could um, speak to that. Uh, oh, sure. Uh, hey, Hallie, yeah, I'm going to suggest Hallie too. Uh, Hallie, go for it. More familiar with it. The popular kid at the party. I'll take this one. <laughs> Um, and just to put a plug in before I get to the, the concerted push here, pesticides are not unique to shellfish either. I mean, they're used in finfish and things like formaldehyde have been used for disinfectant in finfish. So it's disgusting and it's real and it's out there. Um, yeah, but, uh, you know, I think speaking to the point that was made earlier about, you know, having watchdogs out there on what's happening with this industry, I think that, you know, right now is such a key time to have that role because, um, we've seen that the industry has pushed hard. There's lots of money being spent and lobbying done um, to get policies put in place. And they're flying under the radar right now. You know, everything is viewed through the lens of COVID-19 and properly so people are losing their lives. Um, but that's where government should be focused as well. And we're seeing that they're not so focused on that. Um, and that's, you know, we've seen three big things drop in the last month. Um, and, and one of them has been a piece of legislation in Congress called the AQUA Act. It was introduced in the House of Representatives and it's moving toward introduction again in the Senate. Um, we killed the bill last Congress. We're hoping to do the same this Congress, but it, it would basically streamline regulation for aquaculture of all types uh, in federal waterways. And that's currently not a big thing right now in the US. Um, and when you streamline something, you kind of take away a portion of public input. You take away the amount of environmental review that's put in place. And so, um, you know, speeding up and streamlining this industry, which we've all highlighted problems, that's a big issue, you know, to just to speed it up and, and allow corporations to big, take a huge parcel of the ocean and make money off of the external costs that are put in place. Wow. Um, and streamlining across the board has been happening. So um, aside from this bill that was reintroduced in the middle of the pandemic, um, we saw an executive order from the White House. And there have been a few troubling. There's one I hear about social media lately from, from Trump. Um, but Trump actually issued an executive order um, while fishermen are they can't pay their vessel payment. They can't get on the water and fish. They can't put food on their table. The restaurants aren't buying seafood right now. And so they're struggling and an executive an executive order drops that does nothing for them right now. All it does is um, speak to streamlining again, permitting and regulations for all types of aquaculture. Um, and so, you know, the nationwide permit that was spoken about earlier that, you know, for finfish, I mean, for shellfish, uh, the executive order tries to put one in place for finfish. And so we've seen the, the uh, nationwide permit overturned for shellfish. It's not a good plan. It's not great for the environment. Um, but again, we're trying to use the same broken system uh, for finfish where it's, you know, it's harmed other countries. There's no reason to push it through right now. 
yet for some reason industries gaining traction with with policymakers and they issued the executive order and then the, the third piece is the environmental protection agency actually announced a general permit for water discharge from aquaculture facilities uh, in new england and so a general permit again streamlining things making it easier to continue operating uh, in an industry that has documented harms uh, in other countries and here at home in state waters. Woo! Yeah, you know, uh, you know the, so looking at the federal, I mean, we are in a deregulatory administration right now, and I think there's a lot of folks out there who love that um, to to get rid of the bureaucracy. I think the the generic posture of the current administration is to is to get through this red tape process and considering it nothing but a drag. And I, that just pisses me off because if you look at the history of American environment, the quality of the American environment since 1972 and the Clean Water Act, there is demonstrable improvement that took hard work and science and regulatory policy while the economy grew. And and so the, the notion that every time we take a hard look at an industry or ask for the public's opportunity to participate, to bring their voices to bear, that is all about suppressing business. Is, is, it's bullshit. That's not really what's going on here. There's real downside risk if we do this wrong. And Thane, this is what I want to ask you, because it, the federal level appears to be on a track to, to fast track this thing. But you said that the states are different and here are two people i want your opinion on jay inslee the governor of washington state is a known positive environmental thinker i want to know what jay inslee's doing about this and is he involved and is he does he have a perspective with the washington department of ecology uh, which does pretty decent job on a lot of environmental issues and number two my old my old boss in congress uh uh, Ron Wyden, who was a House member when I worked for him, but is now a senator from the state of Oregon. What is going on in the in the in the representation in Oregon and Washington on this issue? Are they sensitive to the concerns you guys are bringing up? Uh, I, you know, I think it's largely absent uh, from my perspective. I don't uh, believe that Governor Inslee, to my knowledge, has weighed in one way or another, except that virtually every government official I know, and I'm certain this is, I know it's true of his predecessor, uh, Christine Gregoire, but I can't help but believe it's true of Governor Inslee as well, and, and uh, the, uh, the federal and, and state delegations are very proud of their shellfish industry, and they hear a lot from them, and what they hear is what you heard when you interviewed the Pacific Shellfish Growers Association, that we're a great industry, and we have a very light environmental impact, and we're generations old, and uh, you know we're feeding the nation. Um, and unfortunately, that has led to what I believe is a uh, complete failure of the uh, Department of Ecology, which is the environmental oversight agency in the state of Washington, to really fulfill its responsibilities to the public with respect to the shellfish industry. I'm, I'm sure the same is true in the pinfish industry, but. Hallie would know that more than me. And uh, the industry itself has been very successful, as I mentioned, in lobbying to secure uh, that light regulatory touch. For example, uh, the Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife requires something for, uh, called a hydraulic permit to operate in the, the waters of the state. 
except that there's an exemption for the shellfish industry for that. It's now being challenged. But, I mean, that kind of exception and um, default of the normal regulatory uh, oversight responsibilities, I think, is is quite uh, common in Washington State. In Oregon, um, your old boss, and now Senator Wyden, I don't believe uh, to my knowledge, has taken a position on this. Again, we don't have that large presence of the industry here in Oregon. Uh, there's no question that uh, the industry's been affected by, among other things, the, the ocean acidification and the big shellfish laboratory we have in Oregon, Whiskey Creek near Tillamook, and um, is uh, something that has uh, an entity that I think there's a lot of federal interest and governmental interest in assisting because it provides seed spat for the industry, I think, all over the country, um, but certainly all West Coast-wide. But uh, I'm, you know, I don't believe there has been really much governmental attention at the state level um, uh, on either side. But in Washington, it's a particular problem because of the private shorelines and the extensive presence of the industry. That's my take on it anyway. Wow. Well, I'll tell you guys, this has been a vigorous, I'm going to say it's a vigorous happy hour. This was not an easy going no. happy hour. This was I a think pretty we were having, I don't think these oh, were beers. Yeah. <laughs> these were martinis. <laughs> these were martinis. Yeah. Very dry. Well, very dry martinis. Very dry martinis. But uh, we have a little uh, a tradition here. Uh, well, I just can't say it's Friday happy hour. There's nothing uh, that we adhere to too strictly. But uh, we have a loose tradition that we do concluding thoughts uh, where, you know, give, give, me, give our audience your, concu- your concluder. Uh, I'll, I'll begin here with uh, Amy. Do you have any closing, closing thoughts here? Uh, sure. And, you know, I think a dry martini is exactly how I'm feeling about, <laughs> <laughs> about all of this today. But uh, my closing thought would be, you know, let's not sacrifice our communities or our public waters and let's not replicate industrial factory farming on land in in those spaces uh, that that we can take a much more precautionary step and and make sure that we have a resilient uh, local but ecological food system very good uh hallie you're up next what are your closing thoughts my closing thoughts, uh, it's an easy tidbit that I give people when they ask me, what can I do? Like, what's an easy thing I can do to help help this, help this stop this industry? And I tell them, when, when you go out to eat or when you go to the grocery store, ask where the fish is from. Um, if it's Atlantic salmon, don't get it. It's farmed. If it is U.S. wild caught, you're probably pretty safe. Um, so those are my closing thoughts. Hot tip. I love it. Thane, what you got for us? Well, you know, I'm a big believer in uh, the power of public awareness and public information and public education. And uh, we saw that with respect to the the restaurants getting involved in in getting the Department of Ecology in Washington State to stop allowing imidacloprid, this neonicotinoid toxic chemical, to be sprayed. So I'm I'm encouraged that uh, there'll be more public, as we've seen, about food generally, about the safety of their food in particular, about the source of that food and wanting, I think one of the maybe the good side of COVID-19 is people want to eat locally. Uh, they want to see their local uh, producers of food thrive, and uh, I'm hoping that that carries over onto the, the our own marine and you know shellfish industries. And I think it will. Peter Ravella, what do you have for us? 
Well, I think it's 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 a testament to the history of you know environmental advocacy in America. It has always been a bit of a battle as advocates has come have come forward and challenged the practices of large scale and I think this is what you guys are involved in industrial scale aquaculture operations. Um, it seems there's been a long lead time uh, in the emergence of aquaculture and offshore fin fish. And I'm a little disappointed that we are not as uh, not better prepared. Uh, I'm not aware um, of the hearings that have happened in Congress or in even in state legislatures. And, and, and that's got to happen because we know when we ask a lot of the environment, when we mechanize these natural processes, I mean, it's all over the Pacific Northwest, whether it's the Columbia River power system or it's silviculture operations and monocultures all over uh, the Pacific Northwest. We know that there's downside risk to these major industrial forces when we introduce them on the American shoreline. And you're probably not a popular group of people right now uh, because we all love oysters and we'd like this stuff. And it seems like this is not the time and the place to be talking about regulation but my thought is is to say thanks and i would like to say to margaret polaro and the east coast shellfish folks is boy i would love it if they reached across the aisle and said look how can we put this operations into a setting that that is responsible and productive and and not environmentally risky i i wish that kind of dialogue uh could occur and uh i don't know Dane, I'm guess I'm. It's a little bit of a kumbaya thought, but I. No, no, but no, damn it, we don't. We don't have to. We don't have to fight this we're out. We're experiencing it as, uh, you know, as the show goes forward. We're we're, we're going to be talking with him next week about see we can do exactly that, and, and hopefully we can. So. Uh, well, you know, I I echo everything Peter said there. It's been a, it's been a great happy hour talking to you guys, uh, Thane Tinson, Hallie Templeton, and Amy Van Son. Thank you all for uh coming on my final thought is just simply that uh you know i echo everything peter said and i do think that uh as we as a society as a planet in fact confront climate change we're going to need to think about where our food comes from in a different way and the ocean is not an inexhaustible thing that we can just fish and fish and fish and fish and eat and just whenever you want a piece of seafood it's it, it just it it that is not with the human population it's just it's intuitively not going to work so aquaculture has an immediate appeal because it, it does it it kind of industrializes the space and i really appreciate the uh the words of caution here i also just want to say that to, to the to the comment about our earlier show and you know that's what this is all about is bringing all of the different perspectives to the table and and so uh we can have respect respectful disagreement i guess is what you'd call it but the, the fact is we can all get together and have a few beers and talk about it in a way that is real um the fact is that we all love our our coasts and our coastal communities the what the working waterfronts are something that i think we genuinely as an american society want to preserve a lot of people earn their living and that is what allows them to be a part of a community. Um, and they do it on the shoreline working in 
aquaculture of one sort or another. And it's just important that we don't allow industries to externalize their costs onto the public or, 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 or onto the planet uh, in ways that are, are unfair to us all. Uh, so with that, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to this episode of Friday Happy Hour. Have a great weekend, and we will see you all next week. 